Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some stories about art and culture to which strict portion control has been applied. This week we're going to end up in a psychedelic childhood in rural Donegal, spend some time in bittersweet nostalgia with double bassist Mark Jenkins, and hear what Paddy Woodworth is adding to the Naturalist bookshelf, which this time involves a volume about some closely observed forest. But we begin with some closely observed gardens in a new exhibition at the Irish Georgian Society in Dublin. Robert O'Byrne, known to some by his internet handle The Irish Esthete, slogan This Is Not an Oxymoron, is the curator of a new exhibition on the history of horticulture in Ireland, seen through the gardens of its great houses, standing and obliterated. In harmony with nature, the Irish Country House Gardens 1600 to 1900 is a journey with eight stops, created by O'Byrne and designer David Meany at the City Assembly House in Dublin. Dublin, where Culture File went to meet the pair. This is the express version of the garden journey, but if you subscribe to the Culture File podcast, we'll have the full conversation there. Another good reason. This room, as you may know anyway, is an octagon, and it is the oldest purpose built public gallery, art gallery, in Europe and very likely in the world. It dates back to the 1760s when it was built by the Society of Artists. And it was very much intended to hang pictures, which is fine if you just want to hang pictures around the walls. But if you want to do something more, like tell a story, it's, it's a much more challenging space. So that's why David Meany and myself, he's the designer, we decided to break it up into eight stories. It's eight separate galleries, in effect. The challenge with this exhibition was to create a sense of different spaces and a journey through the story of Irish Country House Gardens in one room so this is a large octagonal room it's difficult enough to create eight spaces that aren't just little pie shaped angles so you get this feeling as you come in you turn right into the exhibition and the spaces kind of they reflect the content and they they seem to get a little bit larger and a little bit larger and so they all have their own style and feel reflected in the colors and typeface and imagery used throughout and to try to give you the sense of an open space when you're a little bit confined lead on then into so, the... so we're beginning in pre-garden Ireland so this is this is our little introduction section where you're first introduced and this is uh, the ancient woodland in Abbey Leaks in County Leash which is one of the oldest surviving oak forests in Ireland but this would go back to the middle ages to when Abbey Leaks was a monastery and it has survived intact from that period you can see these wonderful ancient oaks it has a, an oak tree that's supposed to be at least a thousand years old amongst them and Ireland, as you know, 80% of Ireland would have been covered in such woodland, really until the 16th century. One of the interesting things is that pre, say, 1600, which is really when our story starts, pre then, the only gardens as such that we would understand were attached to monasteries and convents and presumably you know, just religious houses in general because they would have been based in the same place, whereas Irish people tended to be, prior again to about 15, 1600, tended to be fairly nomadic within their territories and move around, whereas obviously uh, religious houses had a settled community, so they would have had gardens where they grew fruit and flowers and vegetables, they would have had ponds where they kept fish to eat and so forth, they might have had pigeon houses for the same purpose. Um, The other important thing that they had then in their gardens were medicine gardens, because of course until the 19th century, um, plants were the essential element for medicine. So they would have grown various herbs and plants and so forth, which have been used in the, in the treatment of illness. 
So if we go from there, we come to, to around 1600, which is the, really the big change. The, mon the monastic houses, the religious houses were all closed down, obviously, in the second half of the 16th century by the English crown. And following what Henry VIII had already done in England, the same rules were imposed in Ireland. So those gardens disappeared. But you have a, a great wave of settlers coming into Ireland from the late uh, 16th century onwards. And they bring ideas of gardens with them. So you start to get initially these Renaissance gardens. They're known generally as not gardens. They're laid out in these very elaborate patterns very organized, very disciplined, a series of squares and circles with uh, heavy borders. Um, and they were the first domestic gardens, really, in Ireland. The best surviving example is attached to Lismore Castle, which was laid out just in the early 1600s for, the, for Richard Boyle, the great Earl of Cork. And it is a series of terraces that descend down, and then you have this wonderful view across to St. Carthage's Abbey in the distance. Those terraces still survive. And the other great thing about Lismore Castle is there's still chickens, so eggs. If you eat an egg in Lismore Castle, if you're fortunate enough to be there, it's from the chickens. It's exactly as it would have been in the early 1600s. Are you an architect by training? No, I'm actually a graphic designer and a carpenter and sometimes an interior designer. I wear many hats, but for the moment I'm an exhibition designer. And carpenter, crucially, very good carpenter, because there's a lot of construction that went on in this exhibition, more than would be normal for, for shows. Can we compare the hands then? Well, he's got, he's got a good worker's hands, I think, yes. They're both, they're both very fine sets of hands, actually. <laughs> there's no hammering being done there. There is this suggestion, I, th I guess we'll see it as we go through, that the gardens can sort of alert you to the religious and political allegiances of whoever put them down, and, and that's a way of stratifying the gardens as well. Yes, and in fact the next section, if we swivel around here, we move on to the Baroque garden, which is post the Restoration and the late 17th and early 18th century. In the aftermath of Charles II coming to the throne, he'd spent a lot of time in France, where he had seen, he and his courtiers, including James Butler, the great Duke of Ormond, they had seen the gardens being created there and decided to emulate them, mainly this man called André Le Nôtre, who was the great formal gardener of, of France and laid out the gardens at places like Vaux-le-Vicomte and Versailles. So they brought those ideas with them. And you can still see a very good example of that at the Royal Hospital Kilmainham. What's interesting is then, obviously, you have the Battle of the Boyne William of Orange coming to the throne, displacing James III. Now, James, or James II, I should say, James went in exile to his cousin, Louis XIV, in France. So French gardens had been fashionable until then. But suddenly, of course, what you wanted was a Dutch garden to show your allegiance to William of Orange. Dutch gardens actually are not that dissimilar to French gardens. They tend to use more canals. There's a very interesting character who isn't sufficiently known called William Robinson. William Robinson came from County Leash. He was responsible for a revolution in gardening taste in the second half of the 19th century. So he came from County Leash, we think. He first worked as a boy as a gardener for the Marquis of, of Waterford at Curramore in County Waterford. And then he went to work at Ballykill Cavern, which is, a, which is a house, a country house in County Leash. Robinson went to work there, but left one night, but he left in the middle of winter after he'd opened, turned off all the heating and opened all the windows in the greenhouses so all the rare plants would die. Uh, he went to Dublin, where he met David Moore, who was the head of the Botanic Gardens, who gave him a letter, and he went to Kew, and then he started to work there. And he published a book in 1870 called The Wild Garden, which was the, promoting the notion 
that gardens should look natural, that he had a horror of, of artifice. So Robinson created this notion that um, gardens should be allowed, plants in, in beds should be allowed to tumble outside their borders. They shouldn't be constrained. They should be allowed to fall onto the paths and so forth. That you should mix different plants, different colors together in a palette he created the original herbaceous border. Now, herbaceous borders are an absolute standard feature of everybody's garden. You know, the, the typical, what's called the typical English country garden is actually a Robinsonian garden, and it's based on his Irish ideas. Robert O'Byrne there, and you heard also from designer David Meany at the City Assembly House Dublin, where In Harmony with Nature runs until mid-July. Subscribe now for that walkthrough of all eight spaces. Now, Paddy Woodworth with another volume of writing about the natural world that everyone should read. And this time Paddy has thumbed his way along the shelf until he's come to H for Haskell, David George, and a book from 2012 in which the biologist watches with almost religious attention a small patch of forest over the course of a year. Here's Paddy Woodworth with his latest addition to the naturalist bookshelf, David George Haskell's The Forest Unseen. When laughing children chase after fireflies, David George Haskell writes in The Forest Unseen, they're not pursuing beetles, but catching wonder. And when wonder matures, he continues, it peels back experience to seek deeper layers of marvel below. That is science's highest purpose. Haskell's understanding of natural science is very deep and very, very broad and he communicates his knowledge with enviable fluency. He writes in lyrical prose that often floats towards poetry, yet is always firmly anchored in the material world. The myriad topics he discusses range from the geometry of atoms in a snowflake to the long relationship between culture and nature in American woodlands. He speculates happily about the consciousness of snails, but he recognises nature's darker sides unblinkingly. All life melds plunder and solidarity, he says. The real wonder, though, is that he does all this through the meditative observation of just one square metre of old-growth forest floor in Tennessee. He goes there almost daily during what he describes as a year's watch in nature. His work draws on William Blake's insight that the infinite resides in the particular, the eternal in the passage of time. From this intense and well-informed focus on one piece of earth, he wanders the entire natural universe from a molecular to a stellar level. He compares his practice to observing the creation and destruction of an intricate mandala by Buddhist monks. Like a mandala, the forest floor takes many shapes and colours, and like a mandala, it is ephemeral, the seasons erasing its images time and again, and then creating them afresh. Haskell sometimes makes his own body part of his experiment. On one bitterly cold day, moved by the capacity of small birds to survive such deep freezes, he suddenly decides to perform what he calls an absurd striptease, he removes all his clothes to experience the winter woodland just as nature created him. His first sensation is one of bracing refreshment. 
but within seconds his head is fogged with pain, his skin scorched by the heat streaming out of his body. Stripped of my clever cultural adaptations to the cold, he writes, I'm revealed as a tropical ape, profoundly out of place in the winter forest. That tiny birds can withstand such conditions humbles him. And the humblest members of the plant community in this isolated rural spot can trigger Haskell to discuss grand ecological projects with massive economic impacts in big cities. He observes the power of mosses to absorb and hold water, thus protecting the earth of these steep hillsides from being swept into the valley by floods. This reminds him of a good news story from New York. In the 1990s, the city swapped costly, high-tech water purification systems for the ecological restoration of the Catskill and Adirondack watersheds. This purified the city's water naturally, bringing great savings to citizens and great benefits to biodiversity. So the mandala on the ground becomes a window on the whole world, a stimulus for a thousand stories, from the tender sexual practices of salamanders to the way leaves rearrange their molecules in response to light and shade. But this book is far more than a cabinet of curiosities. Its multiple narratives are united by that sense of wonder we mentioned at the outset. Haskell is a meticulous scientist, but his vision is not limited by scientific categories. The danger comes, he writes, when we confuse the limited scope of our scientific methods with the true scope of the world itself. He believes that the delighted eye and ear are what link us intimately to the natural world that science can only describe. He suggests that it is through evoking this sense of joy and participation in the living planet that we might yet be persuaded to stop destroying it. Nature in itself, he says, can offer us no moral guidance on how to live graciously on this earth. After all, as he puts it, mass extinction is one of nature's many flavours. And yet, he insists that it is the direct experience of nature, the mindful observation of a snail, a squirrel, or an opening leaf, that can guide us towards an ethical relationship to our environment. Only by examining the fabric that holds and sustains us, he writes, can we see our place and therefore our responsibilities. And in the end, he discovers that he didn't have to go to an old-growth forest to find his natural mandala. We create wonderful places, he concludes, by giving them our attention, not by finding pristine places that bring wonder to us. So there you have it. You can start your own years watching nature right here and right now, wherever you may find living things to wonder at. Paddy Woodworth there, squeezing David George Haskell's The Forest Unseen onto the Naturalist bookshelf. As ever, check out the Culture File page on Lyric or the Culture File page on SoundCloud for Paddy's full shelf. 
And next on the Culture File Weekly, we have another bittersweet symphony with Cleona Ryan. Ryan, you may recall, is a violinist who spent the enforced musician's pause that was the pandemic recording conversations with her friends and colleagues, musicians of all sorts, who suddenly had a few moments to think about the career they'd chosen. Her podcast, Bittersweet Symphony, is charting those moments in Bitter and Sweet, and she's been sharing some of those conversations with us. This time she stirs the still waters of Welsh-born double bassist Mark Jenkins. I'm Cleana, a violinist, freelancer and member of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. Mark Jenkins is someone I had seen often across the stage co-leading the bass section of the National Symphony Orchestra. So, I asked him, how had life been before March 12th, 2020? What was going on for him? Well, my back was bad. It didn't feel bad enough to stop, but it wasn't good enough to keep going. When they said, go home three weeks off, I thought, great, I can sort this back out. I stopped playing. I I didn't play from March until August. I did not touch the bass at all. What was that like? Yeah, it was actually really good. (laughs) And what does he remember about those first few weeks after March 12th? The silence, no traffic, and the birdsong seemed to be the spinal tap up to 11, you know? The birds seemed to have turned the knob up to 11, you know? And it was fabulous. And I I, I genuinely missed that. And I, I wish we could get a lot of that back. A question about what feelings had emerged for him during that time and space led directly to his recollection of his bitter experience. I think loneliness, especially in the night times, that was, I found that kind of very hard to cope with. The loneliness in plain sight. But I think basically the loneliness comes into my bitter thing, not being able to go back to Wales. So, um, and my mum, my sister, you know. Oh, I didn't, that's the word, I think this, oh, hang on a minute. The Welsh word is he right, which kind of means longing. And that's what it was. It just hits me, you know. Not to see my, my family and my country, you know. It's not, it's not a kind of, I mean, it's not that kind of tub thump in Wales. You know, I'm, I hate all that borders and whatever. But it, it is me. I'm Welsh. You know what I mean? What does it mean to you? I don't even know. I used to think it was a red jersey. I just don't know what it means. Just what it means this, you know what I mean? And how did he connect with Wales and his family during this time? There was lots of Zooming and family WhatsApp groups, of course. But there was also that drive he took. We're very lucky in Greystones. If you go up on the hill on a really nice day, you can see Wales. Would you go up there to look, to see? Oh, yeah, big time. I would do, yeah, yeah. I get into the car and there's this little turn. There's a little mound there every day. And I stop the car, get out, breathe. And I can do a 360 turn and there's the big sugarloaf there. And then there's a the little sugarloaf there and Bray Head down there. And then hopefully Wales over there, you know, perfect. His bittersweet was the death of his dear Auntie Jenny. She was his best friend, Simon's mum, and was a second mother to Mark growing up. So family, friends, parents or colleagues would be uncle or auntie. It was kind of an agreement. I'd come along and if mum was teaching locally, she'd be there before me. But if not, I'd go down the road to see my auntie Jenny. It was April the 17th, I think it was. I got a message that from Simon that said that um, she passed away. So obviously I rang him straight away. She'd gone into a home. The COVID got into this home and within five days she was dead. But the way he was talking, it was all sort of, I've lost my mum, 
but she's gained her dignity again almost, you know. And he was telling me that for years she's, and it must have been incredibly difficult for them just to basically say, I want to die. And his attitude to COVID at that point was, I've lost my mum, but she's gone and she's out of pain now. So that's the bit of sweet, I suppose. There were many sweet moments for Mark, but the sweetest by far was given to him on his birthday by his children, Oshin and Isabel. Well, they were lots of good ones, but actually, I'm going to go again now. <laughs> it was my birthday. Oh, God, this is really hard. Oh, God. Basically, I woke up on the morning, and we have a kind of a tradition that in the morning we do prezzies. So the next thing, they all come up. Oshin had painted me a picture of a dragon. And there's basically, there's a song called Callan Lan, which is a Welsh song. Callan Lan, um, Yearning Heart, the first song I sang to Isabel, the first song I sang to Oshin. And, uh, oh, God, this is so hard. And uh, Isabel had she'd gone and learned the guitar chords and sang it to me in bed. And then the next day they presented me with Welsh cakes and all this. So I thought, oh, my God, it was, it was just fabulous. But that wasn't the end of it. So we went for a walk. They bought me my coffee in my favourite place. And then we came back and they said, right, for lunch, sit down. We're having um, Welsh rarebit. And then the next day they came out with these things called Barabrith and uh, they'd made them. I said it was the best birthday I've ever had, you know. Yeah, that was absolutely amazing. From wanting nothing, I got everything, you know. And what has this process of documentation meant to him? I wanted to find three things that I thought really encapsulated the bit of the sweet and the bittersweet. The experience of this, remembering those things, the picture, the song, the, you know, the bad of breath, they were definitely moments that from this will always remember because of that, you know. It was good to soul search, really. Mark Jenkins there talking to Cleon Orion about the bittersweet learnings of recent times. Ah, the old days. You can find more of Cleaner's Bittersweet Symphonies where you get your podcasts. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, the benefits of a psychedelic childhood. According to our correspondent Liam Cagney, they are many, not least of which is growing up into our correspondent Liam Cagney. What rave new world that has such creatures in it. What happens when, at a young age, the age of schoolyard cries in Sesame Street, you're exposed to the most outrageously weird psychedelia? I'm what happens. Kilclinny County, Donegal, is a calm seaside parish. For me, as a boy growing up there, life's parameters were quickly set. I took for granted kicking football at Naran Beach. I took for granted working on the bog in Lafad. I took for granted Enya and the Late Late Show, Zig and Zag and Popeyes. And I took for granted the spiralling synthesizer tones to which my brother listened. And I took for granted the kaleidoscopic tie-dye my sisters wore. And I took for granted how my teenage siblings hitchhiked to raves, gallivanting at weekends, getting into arguments with my parents. And as I sat down to eat Cocoa Pops at the breakfast table, I said to myself, I will be like that when I'm older. Rave culture, when I was a boy, cast onto my rural Donegal environment a richly strange tapestry. If you look back at those early music videos by Aphex Twin, The Shame and the Prodigy, you'll see the imagery is all beaches and cliffs, leafy lanes, rolling hills. You're essentially seeing the landscape of northwest Donegal, but purple and red and yellow and fire. It was both normal and extraordinary, a psychedelic pastoral. 
The music you're hearing in the background is a single by The Orb, Blue Room. In 1992, it reached number eight in the UK pop charts. How likely are we ever again to witness a 39-minute-long slice of mind-bending psychedelia crash into the top ten? I listened to Blue Room often as a boy alongside other Orb tracks, like the snappily titled A Huge Ever-Growing Pulsating Brain That Rules from the Centre of the Ultraworld. My teenage brother Eamon played them by lamplight in our bedroom. For me, psychedelia was as normal as bread and milk. What else did those lapping waters evoke than the nearby dark Atlantic in all its seaweed mystery? Nowadays, 90s rave culture often gets short shrift, but that neglects rave's artistic power, how through technology and youth it casts the world in a new light. The documentary that showed this well was Rave New World, which aired in 1994 on Channel 4. We taped it on VHS. I watched it regularly and it deeply marked me. Rave New World explores the early 90s convergence of youth culture, technology and drugs. The pretentious narrator intones, pop culture has met the microchip and a strange new creature has emerged. We see a vast rave in an aircraft hangar. We see ecstasy inventor Dr. Alexander Shulgin attempting to concoct ever more potent potions. And we see a hospital patient who's submitted to an experimental MDMA trial, reminding us that there are few things in life more amusing than someone absolutely off their gourd for the first time. I'd like to meet the Pope right now, he sagely remarks, and share some of my newfound wisdom. The electronic duo Orbital speak, linking rave culture to the primordial. We've been doing this since before history, they say, and that's all we're seeing now, a re-emergence through new technology. Similarly, Matt Black from computer graphics company Hex says, Computers are just generally used in quite boring ways, and we want to use them in more interesting psychedelic ways. Watched on YouTube after an interval of decades, Rave New World is poignant and illuminating and sad. A time capsule from a wholly different era. How faded now that optimism is. Revisited from the standpoint of our 21st century surveillance society, where the big tech capitalists have exploited the internet to cash in on our private lives and obliterated Rave's wide-eyed techno-utopians, well, it's hard for me not to feel almost mournful. Our Rave New World narrator tells us, Techno-hippies are convinced that bit by bit the digital revolution will spread harmony and understanding. Nowadays I'm left wondering whether anything remains at all of Rave culture's utopian promise and of my long-gone boyhood. G.K. Chesterton wrote, There are two equal and eternal ways of looking at this twilight world of ours. We may see it as the twilight of evening or the twilight of morning. We may think of anything down to a fallen acorn as a descendant or as an ancestor. I suppose early 90s rave culture was the twilight of dawn, a token of life's ever-flourishing youth. Give it a listen. You don't see that. You might still see it in the desert. Even now it has the power to pierce through the grey clouds of our newsfeed cynicism.
Liam Cagney there on a Donegal childhood 90s style. And that brings to an end this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more supernatural consciousness next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now. <laughs>